We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Welcome back to Science of Reading Week. Again, I am your host and event moderator, Cassandra Wheeler. I serve as the Senior Manager of Letter State Success with Lexia. We have been amazed by the 14,800 of you, yes, 14,800 of you who have been joining us for our first ever week-long education event devoted to unpacking the science of reading. We have learned from some of the most respected minds in the national literacy community and have done our best to celebrate the brilliant, dedicated work of teachers implementing structured literacy in classrooms all across the country. Each day, Cousin Cassandra has been right here. And man, we had one heck of a star-studded lineup of presenters, haven't we? Let's recap. Day one, we got the party started with the Dr. Louisa Motes and Lexia's own Dr. Liz Brooke. Day two, we kept the party going with an Ask Me Anything Q&A session with Donna Heitmanick and Jennifer Sear of the Facebook group Science of Reading, What I Should Have Learned in College. Day three, we got our heads together, right? With Horacio Sanchez and Maya Goodall, alongside Lexia's own Carrie Larkin regarding Beyond the Brain, what neuroscience can teach us about equity. Day four, yesterday, we were able to relax, relate, release with Thomas Anderson, Jacqueline Greer, and Charlene Evans-Smith. We brought back Carrie Larkin for empowering teachers to reclaim their joy, a rejuvenation conversation. And we did just that, didn't we? Day five, day five, today, Kareem Weaver, award-winning teacher, administrator, advocate, and star of the recent documentary, The Right to Read. Dr. Liz Brooke returns, chief learning officer of Lexia Learning. And we invite Andrea Setmeyer, national chapter coordinator of the Reading League. They're joining us today for a Q&A session based on the film, The Right to Read. I know you cannot wait. Kareem Weaver is a co-founder and executive director of Fulcrum, which partners with stakeholders to improve reading results for students. He is the Oakland NAACP's second vice president and chair of its education committee. His advocacy is featured in the upcoming film, The Right to Read. Kareem previously served as new leaders executive director of the Western region and was an award-winning teacher and administrator. His undergraduate degrees are from Morehouse College, and he has a master's in clinical community psychology from the University of South Carolina. Kareem believes in the potential of all students, the brotherhood of man, and the importance of service above self. His educational heroine for literacy instruction is the late Marva Collins. Welcome, Kareem. Thank you. Glad to be here. As Chief Learning Officer of Lexia Learning, Dr. Liz Brooke is responsible for setting the educational vision for the company's language and literacy products, including the Adaptive Blend Learning, or ABL, strategy. 
She has been with the company for more than 13 years. Prior to joining Lexia, Dr. Brooks served as the Director of Intervention at the Florida Center for Reading Research, or FCRR. She's been working in education for more than 25 years. She has worked in hospital, university, and school settings as a speech-language pathologist, researcher, and she began her career as a first-grade teacher. She's been published in several scholarly journals and books. Dr. Brooks shares Alexia's mission of creating opportunity for every student through the power of literacy education, and it continues to be the driving force behind all her work. Great to have you back, Liz. Thanks so much for having me. Andrea Setmeyer has a master's degree in school psychology from Northern Illinois University and is a national certified school psychologist in Indianapolis, Indiana. She is honored to serve as the national chapter coordinator for the Reading League, supporting a growing network of vibrant chapter leaders throughout the country. Andrea has been a literacy advocate in the public school setting for many years and co-founded the Reading League Indiana in 2019, aspiring to bring greater knowledge of evidence-aligned literacy instruction to educators and stakeholders throughout the state. Welcome, Andrea. Thanks, Cassandra. I'm delighted to be here and be a part of this incredible week. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you for being here with us. We're going to kick things off at this first poll. And so you see what it is. Let us know who you are, right? So from your perspective, your role, are you joining us today as a teacher, administrator, policymaker, specialist, or some other important role in education? And so I'm looking at the chat. You all are already responding. I bet you've already clicked on the poll. So let's take a look and see who's in the house with us today. Let's see. The results from the poll right now indicate that the percentages are... Oh, it's oh, wow. This is interesting. So we have 34 percent of you that are specialist. We have 27 percent of you that serve as a teacher. Twenty five of you are in other category. And thank you for putting in the chat what you actually represent in the field of education. Fourteen percent of you are administrators. And even though it's zero percent, four of you are policymakers. And so for that, we thank all of you for your dedication and commitment to this wonderful field of education. All right, so now let's get ready for this gut punch, if you will. I wanna ask another question of everyone. And I want you to think about this with regard to the discussion that we're about to have for the Right to Read film, because we thought this was a great way to really set the stage for today's conversation. So please let us know, what is your first internal response to this question? Can all kids learn to read? Yes or no? Your opinion. Can all kids learn to read? And as you answer that, if you immediately think yes or no, then that's what we want to focus on because we'll revisit this during the next hour as we converse with this amazing panel of speakers. And I love everybody's in the chat already telling their business. Yeah, you want to you want to indicate that all students can learn to read. If you have a difference of opinion, put that in the chat as well. But can all kids learn to read? Let's see what we get from our poll res results. Fifty-eight 
out of this poll, 96% of you say, yes, all kids can learn to read. 4% of you say, no, all kids cannot learn to read. Well, we're here today to unpack the science. And so as we think about this question and we transition into this Q&A with our presenters, the thing we want to be reminded of is as we talk about the impact of the right to read film and we address this growing crisis of our students' abilities to be able to read, this is what we want to unpack and, and tap into today. So let's start with you, Kareem. Um, throughout the film, we are reminded of the late Dr. Phyllis Hunter's words from more than two decades ago that still ring true today, that literacy is indeed a civil rights issue. It's the most important civil rights issue of our time. And that if you can't read, you can't access the full benefits of society. So despite decades of research, national media attention, and important conversations that a film like this inspires, so many children are still not being taught to read effectively, and it's getting worse. So we'll start there. So Kareem, do you believe that enough of us as educators are aware of the gravity of this situation? Can, can we explain why so many of our own students cannot read? No, the short answer is no. <laughs> so, well, you know, I think the gravity of it oftentimes escapes us unless we feel the repercussions. Um, those of us, whether you're a parent or a teacher or a principal, whatever your role is, you know, it, it can become esoteric. It can become like a ideological debate or um, just an, just just something that we, we banter about, you know, uh, in polite conversation. But it gets real very quickly when students are struggling to read, when our children are struggling to read, it, 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 it is a life changer. It is a life trajectory definer. It's, you're talking about their peace, social, emotional um, status, um, how they see themselves, how they see the world, how they engage and, and how they, and it's the buffer between their own sense of self, their empowerment, their agency and the world telling them who they are. Literacy allows you your own path to self-determination. That's that, you know, that Frederick uh, Douglass quote where he says, um, you can read and you'll always be free. That's real. And the pressures come from all different, all different aspects of society. So I would just say no, because we're not in it. The closer you are to the challenge of being illiterate, whether it's because of you haven't been taught or whether it's because you just struggle, maybe you have a processing difference, whatever, the closer you are to that hot stove and feel that burn, um, it, it changes your perspective really quickly. So I would say no. Um, right now, we're kind of in the mind debate, the, the banter back and forth, but I don't think we really as a sector have grappled with the implications of this um, for, for our children. Totally agree. So thinking of that perspective, Kareem, and going back to your experience as a teacher, right? There was a blog post for the National Council on Teacher Quality where you wrote, and I quote, teachers have been asked to figuratively make bricks without straw. 
they had little to no opportunity to close an achievement gap using preparation, curricula, and materials that were misaligned with the science of reading, but they were often blamed for the results, end quote. The question then, yeah, you remember you remember that? The question then is, what can we do? So to borrow from Mahatma Gandhi, how can teachers facilitate the change they wish to see in their classrooms? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll go one step further. You know, social justice starts at home. Mm. And oftentimes we get so concerned about the bigger picture, um, world events, what's going on in the district, what's going on. But we, we social justice starts at home. Um metaphorically, but also literally. You know, we we have to make sure our ducks are in a row. This is a season of learning and growth. So if you if you want to fight the big issues, start with the little issues. It's one step at a time. It's how our own children doing reading. It's how are we preparing to teach our class. It, it's what kind of extra professional development we can access. It's what kind of supports um, do, the, do the children in our home district need? You know, I just found out this morning, I'll give you an example. This morning, uh, I woke up to an article on my daughter in the newspaper, a front page article on my daughter. Uh, she has dyslexia and it just, it's a beautiful article. I'll put it in chat at some point, but it it just reminded me while I'm out here trying to save the world, uh-huh. my own kid, is she struggled. She almost quit school. And I taught her how to read. You see the kid featured in the movie. She's, you know, she's a little girl that says, I love it when, you know, reading. So she yeah. can read, but her battle um, she no kid should have to fight that battle alone. Every kid needs a champion. So I would say what we can do is we make sure that the children in our purview have a champion in us. That's the first thing. The second thing is to make sure that the things we touch, we touch are all right. And and that might mean uh, some learning. That might mean an extra season of growth for us as professionals and as parents. And it also might mean pushing on those that are the closest to us who might not be used to pushing. You know, I don't, not too many friends. I used to, everybody used to know Kareem and love Kareem in Oakland. Now, not so much. (laughs) They hate to get my email because I've had to push on some people that I love dearly. I've known for decades, but we're talking about literacy. We're trying to save our kids. And if I'm going to do what the question you ask is, like, what do we do next? I got to push the people in my own circle to to align with the science of reading so that kids have a fighting chance uh, uh, in society. And Kareem, you have a circle right here. And so I wanna challenge you, one of our one of our viewers, one of our family members today has two dyslexic daughters. So yeah. I want you to just speak to him and our other family here that not only are educating students that have dyslexia and challenges with learning, but the parents here, just like you have been supporting your daughter. Can you mm-hmm. give just another word of encouragement to sure. Jeff and any of our friends that are parents of their own dyslexic children, if you will? 100% absolutely. Listen, so so here, let me start with the good news. The good news is that they need what the research says we should be doing. They, they, they don't, it's not as if you, you have to invent the cure for cancer. You, you just have to learn and follow the research consensus. Now it's going to be tougher because they're going to need some diagnostic support. They're going to need, um, you know, all kinds of things and follow up. And it could take long depending on where they're at on, the, on that spectrum. But, but they can do it. Let me tell you, my little girl was ready to drop out of school. The only reason she didn't drop out was because, you know, her daddy's the reading guy. And, and, and 
you, you know, when your parents are teachers, you can't just drop out of school, you know, well, you can, but it's hard. So she's hung in there. But in eighth grade, she was in the bathroom eating by herself because it was just too much for her. She was overwhelmed. So she was at that point. And now, you know, that was before we knew. And I had taught her how to read. As you saw in the film, I taught her how to read. But now that she has had that diagnosis, now that she understands I'm not crazy, I'm not dumb, I'm not stupid. I, I, I have gifts and I have talents. I can read. I can do anything I set my mind to. She's a straight A student now the same child. She's All-State softball player. I put the link in the uh, chat about the article. All-State softball player going to Bowie State, a historically black college in the fall. Let me just tell you, don't give up. I know it's hard. I know. And and we had to spend money we didn't have to get her assessed. Okay. But they're worth it. They're worth it. Don't give up on them. I know it's tough. And just think about it from their perspective. They're going to try to make sense of what's going on with their limited understanding. And we, as their champions, have to stand in the breach and say, you know what, you're gonna be all right. We're gonna figure this out together. And and my my other thing of, of encouragement for them is don't wait for the system to sound their alarm because that alarm bell goes off differently for different children and different profiles. Don't wait for your child to flip a chair to get the help. Don't don't wait for your child to to um to disconnect and go numb to get them the help. You know, as soon as you can, give them the support they need, whether it's a tutor, whether it's a screening, whether it's an assessment or whatever it is. Don't be afraid of the label of special ed. I know some of us have a stigma around special ed. Don't worry about that. That's power in your hands when they had an IEP. So I would just encourage you. It is possible. I know it can feel bleak. It did for us. We didn't know what to do. Um, but now I look at it and, man, she's killing it, crushing it. Not just softballs. She's crushing life right now. You yes. know, so I, yes. that would be the encouraging word I could give to you folks. There are so many family members in this chat right now that are resonating with your story, that are speaking to their own issues, that are supporting one another. We are getting more and more hearts of people that are just thanking you, Kareem, for what you have done and are continuing to do as you champion, not only for all students, but also the shining example that you are right there in your own home. So many parents uh, and grandparents are, are in the chat right now talking about the, the, the challenge that they're currently facing and overcoming daily because they're going to stick to it and stay brave as Dr. Kelly Griller just said, we're gonna stay brave. Thank you so much. So Liz and Andrea, when we think about um, our schools and our administrators, uh, why do you think some schools and administrators are hesitant to shift the curriculum and instructional strategies toward science of reading based instruction and curriculum materials? Like, can we remedy that situation? So as Kareem mentioned, what are the solutions that we, that are in our control that we can take some power, that we can be brave enough to address on behalf of our students? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, and I wanna start by acknowledging that there are valid reasons why school administrators and school districts don't have the time to jump on and learn all they can about the science of reading, right? They're balancing a lot of really important priorities on their plates. Um, but the most important reason, the most changeable reason is because they don't know about the science of reading. You can't give what you don't have. So we have to build knowledge of the science of reading at all levels of district and schools with all community stakeholders. I love to see teachers leading this charge, but we need all community members. We need to follow Kareem's lead and have these hard conversations to put our kids back in focus. We can't defend the literacy data and what we've been doing for years. We have to use the research. 
That's beautiful. Liz. Yeah, I, I, I love that, Andrea. And I was one of those teachers. I was a dedicated first grade teacher. I stayed late. I worked hard in my classroom, but I didn't know what I didn't know until I went back and became a speech language pathologist and reading specialist. So absolutely. And I love that you said across all levels, because I know there's a lot of focus on K to three or K to five. But what about our middle school and high school teachers? Over 85% of the curriculum is taught via reading, right? So absolutely, we need to support teachers. I think another reason, um, you know, having been one of those teachers, there is a lot of guilt. There's a lot of shame, but it's it's not in the teachers. Our, our universities, we need to make sure teachers are coming out with that knowledge. I think there might also be some misconceptions that um, the science of reading is going to take away the autonomy of our teachers, right? Or that it's just phonics or it's it's one size fits all. So I think a lot of that education is not only around the concepts of science of reading, right? In terms of syntax and semantics and explicit, but also talking about how it is not just phonics, it goes beyond that. It actually provides a very personalized approach when you pair assessment with this knowledge. So, um, and then I think from a pure business standpoint, unfortunately, a lot of schools and districts have paid a lot of money for these balanced literacy or whole language programs. And they need to make sure that when they shift, they are also, to Andrea's point, supporting those teachers. I love that. And that's actually a, a great segue. So speaking of shifting, um, let's all shift gears a little bit. I'm going to offer this question to any one of you on our panel. I do want to circle back to the fundamental conversation around equity that the film really addresses. So that is, we all know some students have access to support for remediation and tutoring, and then others do not. So how can we as educators make sure our students that are in historically underserved, predominantly Black, Hispanic, American Indian, or Alaska Native communities, what do we do to make sure that those students can be supported in similar ways to those that do have those access to resources? And so, Kareem, if you'll start and address this question, then I would love to hear what um, Liz and Andrea would like to share about that as well. I'm, I'm really glad that you're asking this because there is an unfortunate stigma um, for some that the science of reading is somehow a less than endeavor. That it's not, you know, uh, providing rich experiences and this and that. And I, I want to, I look. Um, I think we sometimes forget that there is a, a distinct role of the educator. The science of reading just is just basically saying this is what you need to get kids to read. Fine, we we got that. That that's the formula. That's the those are the ingredients that need to be there for for the majority of kids. And and the, so the equity piece of this is if you want to get the greatest number of kids read, you have to have the ingredients right. You don't, you, you don't, you don't bake a cake and, and, and just, you just use whatever ingredients you want to. You, you use the things that's going to, that's going to make this thing rise and, 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 and be what it's supposed to be. So that's just a matter of course and diligence. But then in terms of, of the attributions, that's about us. 
our perceptions of what's high and what's low. That's about us. It's about us in terms of our own stigmas about who needs what and what it means when you receive. But let me tell you something. You're not dumbing it down when you teach Latin and Greek roots. Okay. Oh. You're, you're not. That's and, and you mentioned in my introduction to my heroine for education is, is the late Marvel Collins. Let me tell you something. Her kids, she applied the science of reading to a T. And her students are gone on to do phenomenal things for the state's attorneys, for this, that, and the other. And everybody knows that they're graduating cum laude and summa cum laude and all this stuff. And kids who were struggling academically before they came to her. So we have to get out of our bag. Let me just put it like that. This is, uh, you know, we have to move our own um, biases to the side and say, what's best for all kids? How can we not just get them to be able to read, but then to thrive? You've got to have a solid foundation to thrive. You know, it's just like building a house and having a good foundation. It's not a big deal till the winds come. And I got news for you. The SAT is a wind. Economic opportunity is a wind. Um, you know, they're, 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 you know, when you lose your job, and you're 45 years old, and all of a sudden you're looking around in this new economy, this information age economy, that's a wind. We have to make sure our students have a very strong foundation. So what they choose to build for themselves can be rooted in something strong and they can maintain it. Um, so from a civil rights perspective, this is just the coin of the realm. If you're illiterate, you're on the outside looking in from day one and we can dance it up. We can dress it up. We can we can talk all we want to about it. But at the end of the day, and I'm not just talking about, you know, prison pipeline and all that. That's that's true, too. That's a whole other conversation. But I'm just talking about life and security and peace of mind and not having to live on the rager's edge all the time. There's one thing to lose your job when you can read. There's nothing to lose your job when you can't read. What am I going to do now? We don't often grapple with that. So from a civil rights perspective, um, literacy is access to society. It's access to freedom. It's access to security. And it's access to opportunity. And I think we, we when we get off that path and we start focusing on other aspects of it, sometimes we, we lose that. This is not just some esoteric argument. This is our access to society. And that's why I'm so glad we're having this conversation at the end of our week, because you're already touching on some things that the family has heard earlier this week. And, and Liz was here for this because when we heard from her interview with Dr. Louisa Motes and, and the family's going to jump in here on me with me, watch the, watch the chat, Liz. Dr. Motes talked about that science of reading is not a, y'all fill it in, right? So what Kareem, do you, are y'all seeing the parallels to what Kareem is talking about, to what we heard on Monday with, with Liz and uh, Dr. Louisa Motes? So Liz, what's, what's your response to that? Yeah, and I, I love that. And she also talked about not capitalizing science of reading because then it becomes a thing, right? And it's an ever-growing body of research. That's the other thing. And, you know, we've talked about elementary and adolescence, there's a different science of reading for those adolescent readers when what becomes more critical for their learning, right? So I love that people remember that it's not a fad. Um, it's not a thing. It's not static. Um, another thing I, I'd love to highlight um, around this equity discussion and absolutely cream around you know, security and, and making informed decisions 
Um, thinking about like even reading a ballot and the right to vote and reading that or reading a prescription label and understanding the dosage properly and the power of that. But one thing that I learned to help shift my thinking many years ago, it's when I had the privilege of interviewing um, Professor Kendi, but he talked about not thinking about it as an achievement gap, but as an opportunity gap. Because, and this was mentioned in the film, Crane, that when it wasn't working, we blamed the kids. And when you think of it as an achievement gap, you think of it as something that's wrong with the kids. And so we need to make sure just by shifting, and I did this myself, I talked about it all the time as an achievement gap, but it's an opportunity gap. And when you shift your thinking to an opportunity gap, that shifts your approach to that solution, right? And so just like we don't want to blame the teachers for not having this knowledge, we don't want to blame the students that it didn't work. And so shifting that to an opportunity gap and then thinking about this really, you know, when you think about, I know, I don't know if we have folks from Kansas on, but the Kansas MTSS diagram is really powerful because you have professional development, you have leadership, you have empowering culture, all surrounding your curriculum and assessment, right? So it's not just the professional learning. It's not just the curriculum. It's that leadership. It's the systems, the assessments. And so if we can make sure that people are approaching this as an opportunity gap, not as an achievement gap, I think that will go a long, long way. And then, of course, looking for evidence-based um, solutions in professional learning, again, across K-12, but having that leadership in the systems and structure is so important. Absolutely. And Andrea, Andrea, before you respond, we're just weaving a thread through what we've heard this week, family. Did you, did you all catch it? What did um, Donna Heitmanick talk to us about? Those three words, and Liz drew a line directly to it. What were those three words that Donna Heitmanick gave us on Tuesday to consider in this conversation about science of reading? Let me see if y'all can put it in the chat. Who, who was here for that? Mm-hmm. Science, structures, systems. Absolutely. And we're just continuing to continue this conversation that was kicked off and started on Monday. But Andre, I want to give you an opportunity to respond about the equity question as well. Thanks. Um, Liz, I love that point about the opportunity gap. Opportunity gap is right. And we see it in all of our literacy data. NAEP scores are just an example. When you look and you break it down by race and ethnicity, it's it's consistent, it's pervasive over decades. This is not a new problem. This has been consistent for a long time. Um, there's the whole film, Right to Read, if you've seen it, is, is layered with equity and framing this as a civil rights issue as we should be talking about it. But there's a, a really poignant moment towards the end where those children are reciting the affirmations. Do you remember? And they say, we have choices. And it stopped me in my track because you, do you know who has choices taken away from them, who has fewer choices, individuals who can't read. If you don't have literacy, you don't have choices. And then I started thinking about our teachers. If you don't have access to this body of research called the science of reading, you have fewer choices. 
of what to do in your classroom to meet the needs of your teachers. And so that's where, that's where I think we find solutions that are equitable is when we put this into place for everybody. We screen everybody at the beginning of school, beginning of kindergarten, like Kareem said um, in a webinar once on Thursday, just because it's Thursday. We're not waiting for a parent or a teacher to be concerned. The equitable way forward is screening everybody and intervening with evidence-aligned instruction right from the beginning, from day one. When we give every child access to rigorous, high-quality grade-level text, that's the equitable way forward. That's what the science of reading shows us. I jump on really quick, uh, Please, Sister Seven. I just wanted so you mentioned that that piece in the movie where the kids were doing it. That was my classroom, the the Martin Luther King oratorical uh, competition in Oakland, which they won, by the way. And the reason why I bring that up is because um, it was a dramatic presentation of something that I wrote. Uh, but it was a Declaration of Independence. You know, it was it was for history, and we we dramatize it. But people said. You shouldn't do that with, if you want to win, you shouldn't put all your kids in there. I had 35 kids at a bilingual classroom, some immigrant, recent immigrants, non-English speakers, had kids who spoke Arabic. I had kids who spoke Spanish, uh, 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 Tongan. I had kids who, like, I had it all. And they're saying, Kareem, this is a really good piece. If you want to win, just, you know, they you only need 10. But you saw in that clip, it was all 35. And my thing was, no, we're not going to leave anybody out of this thing because the oral language development is priceless. Helping them understand the context of history so they can access complex texts. It was a bigger thing going on than just winning some little cheap prize uh, or a trophy they put on their man. I mean, that's fine, win the trophy. But, but we have to make up our minds that it's all kids. And, and, and we can't let other people put their expectations on us about which kids we're going to select and which kids we're going to prioritize. So I was like, no, nah, they all come in. Forget, I don't care. They don't have a ride. I'll go pick them up. And they did that. And, and the oral language development is a piece of it. And that's one of the things Marvel Collins did. If you really look at her work, same thing with Rafe Skeet down in L.A. Like they use, like she do Shakespearean plays and all types of stuff. You do what you have to do to build content knowledge and also to build um it's like building the framework that things hang on. Those same kids are now, you know, one's a scientist at Genentech. One is uh, started his own business. I just saw one the other day at Target. Like they doing, who was who the manager of the store? Like they're killing it. But at that time, people were like, if you want to win, this is what you do. Well, we have to make up our minds that if we want to win, for our kids, there's some things we, we have to include all of them and apply the science, the research consensus to our practice on a consistent basis, especially when it's not convenient to do so. So just wanted to pray. And so can I just, to, oh, sorry, no, Kat, this, can please. I just jump in because no. you mentioned oral language and I have to represent my speech language pathologist crew out there. Um, and in the movie, we saw Ivy and, and, the whole idea that oral language is the foundation for later written language. And so, and I saw someone in the chat mention pre-K, absolutely, forgive me for just saying K to 12, because pre-K to 12, and even as Kareem said, it starts in the home. So I always used to talk when I was a, a speech path with my parent, uh, the parents of the students talking about being a sportscaster, 
right? We're going up the stairs, up, up, up. And you saw that in the movie with Ivy's parents. And so I do just want to echo what you said, Kareem, about the power of the oral language as a foundation for written language, especially for our emergent bilinguals as well. So I just wanted to call that out and make sure um, we didn't miss that part. Thank you for that, Liz. And also, Kareem, if you don't mind answering this, and we don't want to put you on the spot, but lots of people are curious about what happened to Larry. Are you able to articulate that? And if not, we we understand. You're just curious whatever happened to Larry from the film. I can. Uh, first of all, Larry and his cousin were in my classroom. Uh, I adopted his cousin, uh, and Larry and his family moved. Uh, they moved all the time, all the doggone time. And after about four years, I lost track with Larry. I tried keeping up with him, but it, it, he's hard to keep up with. He was doing better, but he, he had a long way to go. Ironically, what the movie does not show is this. If you looked into Larry's record, because you, you saw him at but fifth grade, he, he couldn't read nor write. But according to his records, Larry was actually designated as being gifted and talented. That's what that movie does not show. People say, how can he be gifted and talented? The boy can't read. Listen, in terms of how he his perception, how he put things together, how he processes things, like he, genius, genius. You always saw him with his basketball, but you also saw him with his art supplies, and you saw him uh, with his like little calculator and math stuff, and he could build you a rocket from scratch just with the scraps in the cafeteria. So he would do that type of stuff. That so. I don't know. This is the answer. I, I wish I knew. And, and and frankly, I'm a little scared to find out, to be honest with you, because when a child struggles to read, especially a, a child whose family doesn't have a ton of resources, it's usually not a pretty ending. I'm just being real with you. So, I, you know, when people ask me, I'm like, do you really want to know? Are we? Do we really want to know what happens to our kids when they struggle to read? He came a long way in one year. Um, but you know, but they, but he, not not far enough as far as I'm concerned. And he and his family moved a few years later. He was doing better, but he had a long way to go. And then they they moved, and I was able to keep in touch with the family. Yeah, that's common when you have those kids that are king of the neighborhood. All the kids know them. They know everything. Yeah. They just are brilliant. And then you put a book in their hands, and that changes the whole game for them. And I, and I think that 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 whole stigma about the science of reading is for the slow kids. I'm telling you, the boy was gifted and talented, officially designated as gay. That's why when you see, you know, 42% of self-made millionaires are dyslexic and 48% of incarcerated folks are dyslexic. So we're talking about some of our, our brightest children who are falling by the wayside because they're not getting structured literacy early and consistently. It, 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 it's not just for the remedial. We're talking about, you know, that's your Steve Jobs. That's your this. That's your that. Uh, but we have to give them what they need. And that's part of what I think, you know, we're trying to do today is, is, to, let, is to reassure folks yeah, that this is worth the journey. This is worth the journey. Yeah. And the label shouldn't be the end of the action. It should be the start of the action that now, you know what it is. Now let's, let's move towards figure, figuring out what steps to take to make sure that we can do something to support this, this student and their, and their needs and how they learn, you know, deliberately. All right, let's move on. Okay. So this question, uh, for the most part, is for Kareem and Andrea, okay? So Kareem, we understand that you hold a master's degree in clinical community psychology. And then Andrea, with you being with the Reading League, explains that the science of reading is derived from researchers from multiple fields, including school psychology. 
So can you both share some insights from that perspective, how educators who watch this film and can tap into the psyche of either their schools or their communities to propel forward momentum for this movement? Either of you, whoever wants to go first. Ladies first. <laughs> Andrea? Well, um, I'm thrilled that you brought that up, that aspect up. Um, as a school psychologist, I think um, what you're referring to is in the defining guide published by the Reading League that talks about what the science of reading is and importantly, what it's not. And we clarify that the science of reading has been around for 30, 40, 50 years looking in disciplines like linguistics and neuroscience, cognitive psychology, school psychology for sure, our friends in speech language pathology as well. Um, and while it might be difficult to find a neuroscientist with an office in a public school, we have school psychologists and speech language pathologists in, in every district. And so I would encourage you, if you're looking for a next step, consult with those allies. They often have training and evidence-aligned practices, have maybe had experience in research clinics and can help you navigate that research world. Um, so I'm glad you brought that up. I don't know that I have a great answer for how to tap into a specific psyche, but I can tell you what I've seen work in many schools and communities. Um, the first thing we've talked about all week long is building your knowledge. That has to be the essential foundation. We have to know the science. We have to understand what it's telling us about how proficient reading develops, what's likely to go wrong for different students and how to intervene if it does. Um, we also have to be willing to stop practices that are not as aligned to the science. If we find more efficient, more effective practices that get more of our students reading proficiently, we have to be willing to let go of some other things and do what works for the most kids. But that knowledge is not alone, is not enough, right? That knowledge is the first essential step. My next encouragement is to find a community. Be curious, ask questions, find people who will support you in this work. And this is really where the Reading League Chapter Network comes in. And we started the Reading League Chapters because we had these incredible individuals all across the country who had seen the transformation of the science of reading and reached out to say, how can I help? I want to make sure everybody knows this information because it shouldn't be by chance that you have a student in a classroom with a teacher who knows the science of reading. That should be all of our classrooms for all of our students. Um, the third thing I would say that, again, has been echoed through the Right to Read film in it all week long is use your voice. Parents, educators, all of us have a role to play in this movement um, and never underestimate using your voice. I've seen some remarkable things happen when a parent speaks out, when an educator um, embraces the science, makes changes in her classroom and sees that success, that data gets attention. So use your voice, use um wherever you are to have these conversations and move things forward. It's making a difference. Absolutely. Thank you for that and all the work that you're doing there at the Reading League, Andrea. Kareem? Could you, could you uh, Andrea, I love that. That's very cool because it's so specific. Having heard that, Cassandra, are there aspects of it you want me to illuminate on or, or, or bring out more? No, you know that the majority of the audience are specialists, and then we have teachers and administrators, and of course, there are plenty of, of parents here as well. So um, whatever angle you, you want to address. Well, I would just say that um, for each role that we have. It sounds like there's a variety of stakeholders in, the, in yeah. here today. 
correct. There is um, plenty of work to do and plenty of opportunity to get involved and support children and support teachers and educators, not just teach. So teachers, yes, but it's more than, so let me step back for a second. From the top or from the left all the way to the right, from the universities to preschools to everyone in between, we almost need a reboot. It's, it, we're not reinventing the wheel. Like that's that's a misnomer. This is not a pendulum. This is the this is the same stuff that Marvel Collins was doing 34 years ago. All right. So, but we haven't been doing this. We've been doing some other stuff. But we have to allow period of learning, and that takes that takes grace. That that takes um, maturity. For us as a sector to say, I'm I'm willing to step out and 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 do this. And and I understand that the backlash could be there from my peers, my colleagues who may have internalized some methods they've been using for you, with my faculty, from, from whomever, but that this is worth it. And that's the start of all of this. Is it worth the pain of change? Because let's not be misled. Change is hard. It's hard. You, you're talking about people changing even before um, curriculum has been adopted, even before, you know, the professional development has to be identified, paid for, et cetera. And so you're going to need some support. But the first thing you have to do is make up your mind. this And then I would urge everyone to not go alone, if at all possible. And this is the role of community and parents in this. You, you cannot leave your teachers on an island for this. They, they have to, you, you'll see in the movie, uh, if you haven't already seen it, uh, the teacher, one of the teachers that we worked with, what the story doesn't say is that she didn't have tenure. She could have been fired for that, for doing something that was, you know, kind of off script, real talk. I'm, I'm just saying, like, so now here's the NAACP backing her up and being like, listen, she's teaching kids to read. I, hey, be cool. Don't mess with her. Like, it was like that. Um, she teaching little black and brown kids to read in the hood? Man, y'all better stop playing. And so, and so, but if she had just been on her own, there's no telling what would have happened. So it's, it's great to be able to work with the parents, and especially if they're organized in some way. Um, work with different stakeholders so that you have some sort of covering for your efforts and the fact that you shouldn't have that this is just me now this is yeah i don't think people should have to pay for science or reading training you know like you already went to college to get your degree why are you having to pay for that that shit i'm just saying like so the board you have to advocate the board for the community said listen we want our teachers to have access to this and they should have to be uh, pay for a penny and they should get a stipend for their time of course come on now Otherwise, we're operating like the Salvation Army, the Goodwill. We're, we're hoping people just generate out of the kindness of their heart. And, and that's all fine. People do have kind hearts. The altruism is real. But you know what? This has to be an institutional push. The system has to decide that the kids are worth it and that the educators who support them are worth it. So the board, you got to push them. All that money they just had from COVID, what do you think they're doing with that money? How come that if, if your school district is not providing teachers with on-demand training, and I'm not just talking about, you know, I, I know there are some great professional development organizations and opportunities out there with the science reading. Great, fine, wonderful. Do that. However, not every teacher is ready for, you know, a graduate level course of, of some professional development on the side. They have to live life. 
you have to have different on-ramps for people with different levels of load required. A couple hours on the weekend. There's some that have that. There's some that require 20 hours. Some require, yeah, you have to have a menu of options for them to access and they shouldn't have to pay for that. Because otherwise, who's going to lose out in the end? It's not just the teachers, but it's also the kids that they're serving. So I, I, I just just want everybody to just keep that in mind. All these stakeholders have a role to play this. This is not just the teachers. It's not just the parents. It's not just, it's the principals. If you're not ready to lead through a season of change, this might not be your season. And you just gotta be honest about that. And you can't hit people over the head and browbeat them and just say equity, 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 racial justice, racial justice, racial justice. Man, you gotta, you gotta work with people, you gotta lead. And if you can't do that, then it's, hey. So I just put that in front of people. There's a lot of different angles I go with this. But we have to be honest about where we are, where we are, and the fact that there's room for for everybody on this science of reading movement because all stakeholders have a part. All stakeholders do. I love that, Kareem. And I'm I'm watching our time, and we are at that point where we are going to have to to shift and close this out. But I don't want to do that without giving each of you an opportunity to just give. I mean, like in the time that we have, it needs to be like a sentence. Leave this family. Leave this audience these 14,800 participants that are going to watch this at some point, leave them one nugget, please. Andre, Andre, I'm going to start with you and then Liz and then Kareem's going to end. I need everybody here to get one sentence worth of a nugget left out of each of you for this listening audience, please, Andrea. Your presence here today, educators all week long is inspiring. Don't let it stop here. Go home, keep the conversation going, find your community, reach out to your chapter, um, Reading League chapter. They would love to hear from you. Keep this going. Thank you. Liz? Yeah, I agree. Our teachers are true heroes and look to empower our teachers, whether you're an administrator, a teacher yourself, the idea of personalized professional learning for teachers, personalized and differentiated and explicit is not just for student education. It's also for teacher professional learning. And remember to build the systems around it. And remember, it's an opportunity gap, not an achievement gap, because literacy can and should be for all. Kareem, wrap us up. I just say, I would encourage people, don't get jaded. I know it's tough, especially when you're working in environments where, you know, 20% of the kids are reading and here come people talking about 95 and 100%. The only reason I could kind of say it the way I say it is because I've seen it and I've done it in my classrooms. Um, but don't don't get cynical. I know it's tough. You got to fight that. Don't let people in the circumstances push you out of your core values as an educator, who you want to be. And it's okay to start and learn again. And 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 I'll just close by saying, you know, if my daughter has taught me anything with her journey, it's that um, it's not just that they're worth it, but it's that you have to mine for gold. There's some of the precious metals you have to go get them. You you gotta you gotta go dig for them. They're not just laying on the side. You, you got to go in the earth and go get those things. And that's what our babies need. They need people who are willing to go get them. And they're precious. They're worth it. So I just want to encourage you to hang in there, you know, and, and do what you need to do. I know it's not easy, but don't let them don't let them get you cynical and jaded because it's worth it. It's civil rights are always worth it. 
and our babies are worth it. So I just encourage you guys to hang in there for that, for that wise. Wonderful. Thank each of you all so much. And as we close, I just like everyone here to just think back to your initial response to that poll question we asked at the very beginning, because the goal of today's discussion was all about unpacking the science and actually reframing that question to why aren't all kids learning to read? And then what are you going to do about it? What am I going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We certainly hope our conversation today has inspired all of you to continue joining us in redefining a future where every student can read, write, and speak confidence. Thank you, Kareem. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Andrea. I feel like we need some pyrotechnics right now. Like, can we just get a huge fireworks show <laughs> to punctuate this fantastic conversation and culminate this incredible week devoted to the science of reading? Oh, there are our fireworks. Y'all look at that. We're getting flooded with hearts and fireworks and balloons and, and love from this audience. That's our, that's our fireworks right there. And what better way to end this discussion this week and in Science of Reading Week than to remind you of your special viewing access to the right to read a Jenny McKenzie film starring Kareem Weaver that shares the stories of an activist, that's Kareem, a teacher and two American families who fight to provide our youngest generation with the most foundational indicator of lifelong success. And that is the ability to read. This exclusive access is only, only going to be available from now until Sunday. So if you haven't watched the film, this is your chance to do so. Follow the link that's in the chat right now. Use the code that's on the screen for your special limited viewing access until Sunday. On behalf of all of us here at Lexia, especially Kim Heron, Brittany Bollier, Lindsay Salzberg, Adrian Flider, Lori Taylor, Maura McCardle, our Vice President of Marketing, George Scotty, Lexia's President, Nick Gata along with the most spectacular cast of presenters and speakers that ever assembled on the face of the earth. Dr. Louisa Motes, Dr. Liz Brooke, Donna Heitmanick, Jennifer Sear, Horacio Sanchez, Maya Goodall, Carrie Larkin, Jacqueline Greer, Thomas Anderson, Dr. Charlene Evans-Smith, Andrea Setmeyer, and Kareem Weaver. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we need to thank you, Cassandra, for your amazing leadership and your ability to weave all of these sessions together and to make everyone feel like a family. So thank you for everything you did this week. Thank you so much, Liz. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. I am Cassandra Wheeler, Senior Manager of Letter State Success. It has been my ultimate pleasure serving as your host and event moderator during Lexia's first ever Signs of Reading Week. I give all of you my heart of thanks <laughs> for this amazing opportunity. And with that, I'll say goodbye, everybody. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.